So Money episode 833, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host Megan Gorman. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everybody. Welcome to the show. Hey, you know, it's kind of the anniversary of So Money, almost. You know, we launched on January 14th, 2015. That's going to be Monday. That's the official four-year anniversary for this podcast. Can you believe it? If you've been listening from the beginning, I just want to say, God bless you. You're a rock star. You know, it's one thing for me to be producing these shows. We're at over 800 of them, but I think it's more of an effort, frankly, for you to keep up with all the episodes. So truly grateful, so appreciative, and excited that the show has really evolved um, in a way that I think really is aligned with how you like it. You have been weighing in and giving me feedback these last four years. And I think that today also the way that we've been doing the show on these Fridays is an example of how the show's evolved to be more, uh, you know, more fun, more engaging. It used to be just me answering your questions on these Fridays all by my lonesome, actually on the weekends. Remember I used to do a seven day a week show. Now I bring on a co-host, oftentimes someone plucked from the audience and sometimes someone who is a financial expert because I will be the first to admit, I don't know everything. It's helpful to have someone else on the show who has a body of work, years of experience, knows money inside and out, works with clients all the time. And today we have this kind of person. We have an incredible co-host with us. And I'm just going to go right to her because I don't want to waste any more time. I've got some incredible questions to tackle. Thank you to everyone who's been writing in or audioing in and Instagramming all of your questions. We're going to tackle as many of them as many of them as we can today. And to help me steer the ship is Megan Gorman. Welcome to So Money, Megan. Hey, Farnoosh. Happy New Year and happy anniversary. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, happy New Year to you as well. I'm truly excited to be sharing the mic with you today, Megan. You know, uh, we have some some sort of, you know, difficult questions coming up, multi-layered And you're such a pro. You're the founder of Checkers Financial Management. You're a Forbes contributor. Your blog is called The Wealth Intersection, which is all about the intersection of personal finance and daily life. Obviously, very passionate about money. You've been working in this space for decades. You're based in San Francisco. Born in Jersey, living in California now. So, but I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here because I mean, as you pointed out, some of the questions we're going to go through today, really complex. And yet I think that there are questions that most people have. Um, and actually, you know, I ended up looking at this with my team and we were saying, we hear this type of questions all the time. So I'm looking forward to really getting into the details and, and providing some advice. Thank you so much. I'm so, how did you get into the space? First of all, what drew you to the money world? Oh, well, I mean, I think I've always been fixated on money. I'm a Taurus. So if, of the astrological signs, we are the money sign. Um, but, you know, I think it came really down to in law school, I took a tax class. And for anyone who's interested in tax, what we'll tell you is it's all about puzzles and thinking and working through all these sort of games with how do we get the rules to work for p- people's situations. And that 
combined with my love of history, um, you know, it's sort of, it was a good fit because people are complicated and, you know, what you find with finance and with money and, and furniture, I'm sure you see this all the time is just because an answer is right for me, it doesn't mean it's the right answer for you because we have such different personal backgrounds. And that's, what's key here. Personal finance is personal. And in these episodes, you know, these Ask For New shows, um, we we get to hear a lot of personal situations. But I think we all can identify, even when the questions are so personal, we can see ourselves in these complexities or in these scenarios. And I do think there's a little bit of voyeurism, too, that's at play. We like to see what's going on in other people's lives. It gives us maybe some reassurance or a feeling that we're not alone, as though it could be um, very easily a situation that's happening in our own lives. And then to hear the solution, we can apply it to our own life. And believe it or not, these episodes are actually in some cases more popular than my interviews that happen on Mondays and Wednesdays. So if that says anything. Yeah, no, I think it does. I mean, all of us, you know, it's funny because I, my, my, my firm works in high net worth, ultra high net worth. And, you know, what, what you find though, is that all of us have these insecurities. It doesn't matter how many zeros you have in your net worth, whether you're worth $1,000 or you know $500 million. Insecurity is one of the, the biggest things that all of us experience in our financial life. And I think you know, part of what makes this show so valuable is it's, it's about talking through those issues and, and making yourself realize that you know, the, the things that keep you up at night about money where you're going, oh, my God, can I pay that bill? Can I afford to do this? We, we all do it. it and, and, and it doesn't matter who you are. We all worry about money. Student loans also is a big topic of concern. It's not just something that impacts recent grads, right? I have friends who are in their 40s who are still grappling with law student loans, medical school loans, uh, you know, MBA loans, and in some cases, you know, even some of those undergraduate loans that have just been haunting them for the past 15 years. And so this transitions us to the question we have here on Instagram. We have a question from Mick Adventures with Bry. That's the handle. And the question is about student loans. In this case, our listener, she's 25 with a degree in electrical engineering. And right now says that the student loans are set up for a seven-year payoff if she sticks to the minimum payments. She says there's a little bit of money to go around though at the end of the month. And no, so now wondering, should I just stick with the minimums and you know ride out these, these this loan or these loans for seven years or am I better off paying them down faster and then taking what's, you know, left after that, getting rid of the loans sooner and then using the money that's left that and then using the money that's left from there to invest, to invest in the stock market. So I think the question is, you know, what's a what's the better trade-off? We don't know the interest rates on her loans PS, which would be helpful to know. My sense of it is, Megan, is that this person feels as though as long as the student loans are in the picture, she cannot invest in the stock market. Well, well, I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay. Cause first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm 42. I went to law school. I'm still paying my student loans. Now in my situation, mine are at a very low rate and I believe I can make more in the market, but 
you know, in this situation, um, you know, first of all, this person is 25 with a degree in electrical engineering, which is phenomenal, right? I think, I think it's, it's, it's a really complex field and it's also a career path that, you know, has a lot of potential for high earning. Okay. So, you know, is this person, you know, as they're going down the path right now, they're just starting out. And I think from an engineering standpoint, right. Engineers like process. So I think putting, framing this question with a little process might, might help a bit because the process I would put around this is you need to look at every financial question from a tax angle and from a cash flow angle. And I don't know how you feel about that, Farnoosh, but, but I think taxes are key here because if you're 25 and you're just starting out, right, there's a good chance your income is $65,000 or less. And as a single filer, that, that's an important demarcation because if you make $65,000 or less and you're paying student loans, you are getting the student loan deduction of $2,500. Now, now to... Right, right. And, and two things to note, the, the phase out for that is actually at 80,000 for single filers. But at 65 and below, you do get the full benefit. So if you think about it, from a tax standpoint, if you're paying your student loans, you're probably getting about a $625 savings, which might be one month of student loan payment, right? So as you think about the numbers in this situation, right, right? So I mean, you have to almost look at your loan payments and net them out. You know, how much am I paying a year less the tax savings? So net, net, this is what I'm paying, right? So th there's some tax benefit. So over the next seven years, this, this individual is an engineer. I mean, engineers can make serious income. So this individual might cross that $65,000 mark and lose that deduction. So I think to some degree from a cash flow standpoint, you want to map out what you think your projected income is going to be over the next seven years, and look to one, maybe realize at a certain point in time, the loans become completely useless to you if you have very high rates on them. Whereas right now, if you're making under 65000 at least you're getting a tax benefit. And most, and furnish, most, most 25-year-olds don't have many tax deductions. I didn't at 25. I don't know. But did, did you? No, because I didn't have any kids. I didn't have a mortgage, really. I was completely free of most adult responsibilities. You're absolutely right. This is this is really good, Megan. You know your stuff. You know what you're talking about. This is uh, really um, great to hear. I love how you're driving this home for us. And I love what you're saying here about looking at the tax benefits and the cash flow benefits and putting it in this kind of a framework. Also looking at it as a process or a system for our listener here who's clearly science-minded. And I know I come from an engineering family. I completely get it. Totally get it. <laughs> I'm married to an engineer. Everything's a process. So I think it helps. Mine too. <laughs> it's perfect. But but I think with but I think with the cash flow part, right? I think we have to sort of debate this, right? Because, you know, net net, if this person can afford an extra payment and then it seems like even after the tax benefit, there's even a little bit more. You know, I, my gut instinct is if the loan rates are high, right? I would, on an after-tax basis, I would chip away at the loans. But if the loan rates are competitive, right? You know, if you're sitting there and, you know, after you factor on an after-tax basis, you're paying, you know, two and a half, three and a half percent. And you think about it and you think, well, I could put the money into the market. I could today fund a Roth IRA, which I might not be able to fund in five or six years because my income threshold might be higher. And the power of compounding 
you know, I, I think that you could split the baby here and do a bit of both. I like the hybrid approach. You know, I'm always looking for the hybrid way that people can um, can tackle two things at once. Should I save or pay off my debt? Should I invest or save? Should I, you know, I'm like, what? why does it have to be a zero sum game? Why does it have to be either or? Maybe you can do a little bit of both. It may take a little bit longer to achieve both goals, but at least you have some skin in the game on both ends. And I think you're right about looking at things historically. What does the stock market return versus what is the interest rate on these loans? And, you know, we've been talking about a lot of math here, but I think there's something to be said too, Megan, about the emotional benefits of being debt-free. And let's just maybe address that a little bit too, because if these are really high interest loans, mathematically it would make sense to be aggressive with them and pay them off sooner than later. But also, also there's something to be said about going to sleep at night, knowing that you don't have these expensive bills for the next you know, seven years. I agree. You know, I'm not a big fan of debt, but I will tell you one thing that I've learned over, you know, the decades of doing this and watching. And, and that is, you know, as women, right? Like I hate having a mortgage. I like to pay down my debt. I paid down my expensive student loans, but at times women also need to factor in. And I'm assuming this person's situation might be a woman that we have to also make some financial, take on some strategic financial risk. So I think, you know, the balance between paying these off, which they'd be paid off in seven years, but also jumpstarting other things in our financial portfolio can also be key because I do find with my male clients that they don't need encouragement on leveraging, right? That, that men love to leverage. Um, but with, with women, you know, there is sometimes a, okay, yes, we are going to pay down debt, right? And that's a good thing, but look, you know, you're 25 years old. And what if you decide you want to have a family and take some time out of the workplace? You know, how do we make sure you keep catching up in, 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 in building your financial portfolio? And that might be why something like the, the hybrid approach is the right approach. Um, I do agree ultimately being debt-free is key, but for women out there, Think about being strategic and when you take risk, because it will help you. And at 25, you're in it for the long game. Um, you know, investing in the S&P today, you know, by the time you're 70, that's a powerful thing. So what do you think about all the chatter around recession in 2019, this year now? You know, it's like we've been talking about 2019 being the recession year. And here we are. A lot of people are uncertain about whether to invest because they're thinking, well, if this is the year that things are going to go south, really, why why now? I'm going to lose all my money or a lot of it. But I would argue that this is the year to invest. You're going to get uh, maybe a lower return this year, but you're buying in at some pretty cheap prices, at some pretty cheap valuations. Stocks are getting beaten. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a discount right now. Totally. And, and look, nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody knows. I mean, if I had told you that March the 9th, 2009 was the bottom of the market during the economic crisis, I can tell you, no, no. And you, you couldn't get anyone to invest then. So, you know, look, you can't overthink this. And financial success is a series of repeatable actions. And think about that. It's a series of repeatable actions. So for most people out there, you want to keep it simple and you want to keep it elegant. And I work with wealthy people and they keep it simple and elegant at times. And that is every month you want to be buying. You want to be buying. And this individual who's 25 years old, buy. 
and buy every month and buy in something that is low cost, like a great target retirement fund that's diversified, because you also don't know which asset class is going to come out of the gate first if we have a recession. In 2009, it was small cap. Who knew, right? You just don't know until you look back. So to be pragmatic about it, and to not overthink it and cause stress, because to your point, this is so emotional, set up a series of repeatable action that on the first of the month, you have money going into savings, you're buying your target retirement fund, and you tune out the noise. Because remember, they want you to watch TV because they want you to be, you know, your emotions going. The best investors, they don't listen. They tune it out and they, they listen to the own, their own voice in their head, which is, I'm buying. And, and Furnish, I don't know how you feel about this, but do you often think about who you're going to be at 50, 60, 70? I think, about, I think about not so much my work, but I do think about where I am going to be in my life as far as my relation. Like, okay, so my husband and I, we always – talk about wanting to be closer to our kids in retirement. I think now as working parents, we're not that close in distance to our parents. And that can be really challenging at times for a lot of reasons. And I don't think we want that. We, we kind of have already decided like we want to make sure that we're close to our children. We don't we don't want to be working like we are now in our 60s. Even though we love what we do, we just feel like that's when we should be able to slow things down. And we're working really hard now and trying to put our money to work now so that we can have that free time to do whatever we want to do in our 50s and 60s. So yeah, I mean, to that extent, we have thought about it. I think that's one of the best things to do financially, right? You've started to visualize this, right? You know, you're, you're working hard right now. You've got a, a big career, but at a certain point, you might want to scale back. And I think that that goes to the idea of visualizing who you want to be from an invest, you know, who you want to be in the future and connect your finances to that. And, and that's where doing something every month and going into the market, a, an 11 month recession, cause that's the most recessions are 11 months in the scheme of your life. When you're 65 and you know, you're semi-retired and have grandchildren, it, it, it's noise in the, in the rear view mirror. And that's why I think it's more about thinking about who we're going to be in the future and then doing a series of repeatable actions financially to get us to that person. Well said. All right. So this next question, Megan, the bottom line question here is person's wondering if they should liquidate their 529. This is Annie Klein, GA on Instagram. And here's more on this question. She says, my husband and I have three kids under six. Oof, busy, busy, busy family. She's in the thick of it. <laughs> and she says, we make nearly $200,000 and we have a little bit of student debt. We save 15 to 20% for retirement. We started a 529 a few years ago, but we've been very inconsistent with it and has about $8,000. And we also have our 401k. We really have no savings with the with the kids and a recent uh, cross-country move. Um we depleted our emergency fund. Uh, my husband works for a small company, which might not be alive much longer, and we don't want him to rush back into a job without it being the right fit. So we estimate we would need an emergency savings fund of twenty dollars to $30,000. The question is, in addition to buckling down our spending, do you think we should drain the five twenty nine? 
and you know they said we know we have to pay a penalty, but this could stock up our stock up our emergency fund quickly, and then we could restart the five twenty nine when we're ready. We want to pay for our kids' college, but we're a little overwhelmed. Yeah. So yeah, it's a tough one, and I actually you know. I, I debated this one a bit with my team, right? Because the, the, there's something I want, you know, Annie's dealing with something that I think is we're all dealing with, right? Which is short-term crunch. And what you don't want to do is hurt the long-term strategy over short-term crunch. So when I was looking at this, you know, a couple things stood out at me, um, which is your hu- your husband is currently in a job where you know, he doesn't know if the company's going to make it. And there seems like there's a lot of flux going on. And so from a stopgap standpoint, I I would focus on two things before cashing out the 529s. The first is, you know, you've been doing a great job on 401k savings, but maybe right now let's stop the contributions for a a short period of time. Just loosen up some liquidity on a per paycheck basis. The second thing that I want you to think about is you know, there's a new provision in the tax code. So in pre-2018, pre-TCJA, there was, there's a child tax credit. But, but before the new tax law, if you were married filing joint and made 110000 and below, you were eligible for it. But the new tax laws changed this, and I'm actually really excited about it. So Annie and her husband make about $200,000. Um, they're, they're what we would call, you know, Henry's high earners, not rich yet, right? They're doing really well. They're making money. But because their income is under $400,000, they're going to qualify for the new child tax credit, which for each child under age 17, if you're married filing joint, making $400,000 or less, you get $2,000 per child. So in Annie's situation, she's going to get $6,000 in tax credit, and it's a dollar for dollar. So remember, credits in, t- in the tax world are so much better than deductions, right? So, so Annie, you know, what I would tell you is, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear what Farnoosh says, is, is get your return as soon as you get your husband's W-2 on January 31st. If you can, get your return filed and get this tax credit and get the money back in because that combined with the new standard deduction of $24,000, you know, you might have a significant refund coming back that ends up replenishing some of your cash along with stopping 401k for a period of time. And then the other thing I would do is you and your husband should sit down and for 2019, determine what date you want to turn back on the 401k. And then in the future, I want you to take your child tax credits and use it to fund your kids' 529 plans. It's obviously not going to be enough, but it's it's at least putting something in until you feel you're on steadier ground. You know, I'll say, though, it's a little counterintuitive to what we normally hear, Megan, about, you know, parents don't sacrifice your own finances to pay for college. Uh, I think there is an emotional component to this question. She's struggling with the idea of not being able to contribute to her children's college fund. And you almost feel like maybe I'm letting them down and and then we're going to have to work so much harder in the future to pay for college, which is only escalating in price. So I think what you're saying is interesting. I think it does make sense, but it does also go counter to some of the advice we hear out there about um, you know, needing to put your own oxygen mask on first. But to your point, they can really shore up a lot of this cash flow, this extra cash that they may need by leveraging their tax benefits. And I think dialing a little bit back the 401k, I mean, they're contributing 20% 
That's very good. They could do 10% and then still be doing better than the average person and probably get a nice chunk of change back in their wallet. Right. And and I want to go back to the to to something you just said about putting your oxygen mask on first. You know, I think I think we're told we have to sacrifice a lot for for our children and women in particular shoulder this burden. You know, it's always mom who's willing to give stuff up. But but in this type of financial planning, you know, I've always sort of looked at it as at times you need to know when to be selfish. And it seems selfish to worry more about retirement at times and, and versus the education funding. But if you propel yourself into the future, you do not want to be a financial burden on your child. Your child's going to have to go through their own financial life and out of the gate, having to support mom and dad because mom and dad didn't do retirement savings or didn't do enough, that, that's, that's going to be a negative. That's going to hurt them over the long term. And this is where at a certain point in time, you know, there, you've got to find the balance between being selfish, selfless and selfish, but don't be afraid to be a little selfish about money. Um, I, I think it's it, it has to happen. There has to be boundaries. And you have to think about how are you going to survive? Um, you know, and, and in this case, these two, they're doing phenomenally well. I mean, they- yes, they are thinking ahead, which is huge. Like so many people deal with adjustments in their lives in the moment. It's they treat it like a knee jerk reaction and a money 911. And they're thinking, all right, in the future, what if our, you know, my husband doesn't have a job? What do we do? They are seeing the future. They're predicting their outcome, their planning, which I think when it comes to your money management, that's 80% of it. Right. I agree. I agree. And I think the thing is, you know, by just taking a step back, recalibrating and then propelling forward, I think that will help them. And, you know, I think what they have to find down the line is, you know, they might, they, they should do their four five, yeah, they should do their 401k, but then they also need to be doing 529s. But, but one of the things that has been found in a lot of these studies is there's a, an adjustment in cash flow when your children from newborn to six, you know, you're, you're struggling with things that you don't struggle with as much financially once they're over age six. So if in those years, you're not saving as much towards 529 as you want to, as long as you start at, age, at the child's age six and really being aggressive with it, you will get to the right place. So be kind to yourself you know, and be proud of the fact that you have something already started. Um, I think, I think that's, that's the hard part of all of this is you can't be perfect all the time. You've got to understand that financial lives have you know, ups, downs, and you know, positive moments and, and negative moments. Well, kudos really to them. And I think part of the thing that we always forget to do is giving ourselves due credit. They've been doing a really fantastic job. And by the way, three kids under the age of six, (laughs) I bow to you. All right. Amazing. Our next question, Megan, has more to do with salary and whether or not this person feels is being, uh, she feels is being paid fairly. This is IZU on Instagram, Zartashia. She's 24. She works for a small education consulting firm in Washington, D.C. She makes about $46,000 a year, which by the way, was how much I was making when I was 24. So all I can say is, wow, salaries have been pretty stagnant for so long. What is going on? She does get great benefits. She's grateful for the unlimited paid vacation. She's got a 6% 401k match. Wow health and wellness programs. She says, despite it all, it's really hard to save money. And I can relate to this. I mean, she's living in DC, which is a high cost of living area. 
She says she did get a 10% increase back in June, but she's learned recently that um, someone who is older than her, who has a master's degree, makes $60,000, a colleague, I suppose. And she has a bachelor's. So she wants to know if she's actually being paid fairly based on this person's profile and salary. Well, I will say this before we really dig into things here, Megan, I feel like that's not a good benchmark to, to measure yourself up against, you know, this person who's got more education, probably a different role. Um, It's neither here nor there. I would say better to find out what other colleagues with your rank and file are earning at the company. And and this may not be something you're going to learn just like by asking around. It's, It's not really water fountain conversation. But once you befriend people and you're out at happy hours or you're, you know, just becoming friendly and you're confiding in one another, this is where the juicy stuff often gets revealed, how much people make or how much people should be making. But also there are sites like Glassdoor.com, Payscale, Comparably.com, where you can find out what other people in your shoes with your degree, with your background are making in your industry in DC. So you can really look at apples to apples. I I agree with you. I think, you know, when I read this question, the one thing I was concerned when I read it was, you know, for a $14,000 increase, it's not worth to run out and go pay for a master's degree. But what struck me was, is that Zartisha is 24 years old. And I know it doesn't feel that w- this way, but when you're 24, the world is your oyster. You can do things because financially you're not restricted. You don't have the kids, you don't have the mortgage, you don't have the dog and the spouse and all the things that makes changing jobs and seeking new experiences um, more challenging. So what I would encourage you is at this point in your career is see your 20s as a collection of experiences because employers, you know, really you don't have to start to commit firmly down a path to your 30s. And employ I can tell you as an employer, I love it when I get young people who have done different things and been in different in companies and and really come to you with with different experiences that might not relate to what I, you know, I'm doing, but relates to giving them life experience. And I think for you, Sartasha, you know, 46,000 out of the gate, it's actually a pretty good salary out of the gate, but I think you need to understand career path at your current job versus to, to what Farnoosh just said, which is what's at, what else is out there, you know? And, and what you often find is really to have salary increases, you know, it might require you to change jobs because the same job that you're in right now might pay $10,000 more at a larger company. Plus they give education reimbursement for you to go, you get your master's at night to keep up the career path. And these are the questions you have to ask. Um, you know, to, to Farnoosh's point, I agree finding mentors. How did you do this? Because it's not just about having a master's degree. It's understanding the career path, understanding the opportunities, and and really just looking and pushing and take risk. I mean, the one regret I have in my own career is I wish I had taken risk earlier. And I think as women, we sometimes don't always do that early on, um, whereas guys are much more comfortable in jumping ahead. So go forth, do it. And and here's the one thing I'm going to say that I deal with when I have new employees. And this might end up burning me in the end, right? But when when I put an offer out there, the men always counter and the women always agree. And there have been times where it's like, you know, I want to say, come on, girl, come on, negotiate, say, hey, what about 5,000 more? Because you know what, as an employer, when you find someone that's really good for the role, 
you might be willing to pay more. You have to put yourself in the perspective of the employer. I mean, they've invested in interviewing you. They've scoped the market. They've identified you as potential talent. They brought you in. They spend time with you. They've introduced you to their team. And now you're talking about money, which at this point, maybe that's meeting two, three, or four. You definitely have leverage at this point. You absolutely do. Completely. And and the one thing is also, you know, when I look at what her benefits are in this, I always find the unlimited paid vacation, it's a little bit of a challenging benefit um, because you have to use discretion and it's hard because workplace optics. So it sounds like a great benefit out of the gate, but it might not be in the end because it's hard to know strategically when you're 24, optically, should I be going on vacation? Um, and these are the more subtle workplace things that I think to your point, Furnish, you've got to understand and get a mentor to help you understand it. Such good information. Let's do one more question here on Instagram from Kristen. Okay. She's wondering how to prioritize her savings, which is not an unusual question. I think this is a good, good thing to be wondering about. Comes up quite a bit. People are not really sure whether to first save for their emergency account. And then, you know, there's so many different ways to save for retirement, which one is better Roth versus 401k. So in Kristen's case, She's 25. She's been working for a little over a year and she has set aside about 50% of her income this past year. How she did that? I want to know. Kristen, write to me. Tell me what you're doing. Um, So for her budget, she wants to one, meet her 403B match of 5%. So that's a total of 10% in the 403B. She wants to max out her HSA. She wants to max out the Roth IRA. And the question is, after all of this is done, should I contribute to a personal investment or put more towards my 403B? Uh, She says she's already accounted for personal savings, things like emergency account, vacation. So she's just kind of looking for uh, other advice. And I think if, if the question here is really about whether to do the 403B more in the 403B or to start, say, a, a brokerage account, an investment account that is personal, you know, the 403B will have some tax adv- advantages there. So the contributions are tax deductible up to a limit, but uh, presumably you have some more to take advantage of there even after meeting the match. So maybe do it up to get the tax deduction, the maximum tax deduction. If after that you want to do more, I would say look into opening up an index fund or a variety of index funds, ETFs via an online robo-advisor type of platform. There are so many. And I mean, I can give you a long laundry list of them from Schwab's Intelligent Portfolio to Elevest to Betterment to, uh, I believe Vanguard has an online platform as well. You have endless options. I think that for me, if I were you, I would probably stick with the 403B until I have maxed it out to get the tax benefit, the fullest tax benefit, and then move on to something uh, different like a brokerage account, which doesn't have any tax deductions at your disposal, but still a good way to put your money to work. Yeah. Kristen's a rock star. I mean, this, this, this keep going because it's amazing what she's doing. But I'm going to throw something else out there because Kristen, I mean, first of all, she's, she's an all-star. Um, I wish I was this good at 25, but she's, she's the beginning of Gen Z. Um, and Gen Z women have an interesting fact about them. They are actually buying houses as fast as at the same rate as their male counterparts, which they are the first generation to do that. These Gen Z women, 
they're amazing. And so the one question I think Kristen should think about is when does she want to buy a house? Because I can tell you that real estate is something that, you know, ultimately everyone should look at and consider as a place to put their money. I have been found, been very fortunate with real estate in my own personal portfolio. I watch my clients and the people who get into real estate earlier end up propelling themselves quicker. So when I read this question, I went back and forth and I love the, you know, I love the idea of funding the 403B more. I love the compounding, but I also love the idea of Kristen buying a house early on. So I was sort of taking another hybrid approach, which is I would put, you know, increase some of my 403B savings, right, beyond the match, but I would start to develop a taxable account because I would want to be able to put a pretty decent sized down payment down if I buy a house, if I'm in her shoes. And I think also, you know, one of the things that people need to think about is as you're getting all the news, one thing that's catching my eye is that different markets are softening. And I'm going to my clients. So my clients are, are wealthy and I'm saying, okay, get ready. We're going to start buying because it's going to be where valuations are a nicer entry point to buy a house. So, you know, Gen Z women who are like Kristen, you know, I would split the baby. I'd add a little more to my 403B and then I'd start to build out an account that's my house fund because you're going to have that moment. And I, and I, I think you got you to gotta pounce when that moment happens in the real estate market. You know? No, I think you're right about the market, especially this year. We're talking a lot about the market becoming a buyer's market in 2019. We've already started to see that in New York City. I think I read something where the average apartment in New York City for the first time and for a long time fell below a million dollars, which I know is like so foreign to most people. It's like, come on, New York, get it together. Stop complaining. But it is an indicator of the softening that we're seeing in the seller's market. Interesting fact, Ryan Serhant, who is a guest of this show, who is one of the stars of the Million Dollar Listing New York show on Bravo, he told me that he has never seen such a soft market in New York. And he started his career in real estate on the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. So he's seen some pretty bad times, but he thinks that currently it is the worst market for selling um, because he says that consumer confidence to buy is at such a low point that it's creating a lot of excess inventory. Houses are staying on the market for a lot longer. People are on the sidelines. It's taking them more time to be convinced to buy. So if you are in the market to buy, you do find something that you like, know that you do have some good negotiating power. Oh, New York, it's time to buy in New York. It's getting soft over there. It's it's interesting, right? And Farnoosh, you're in New York City. You've got, you know, you've got people paying 13% state ta- state and city tax there. I'm in California, top bracket here's 13%. The people who often buy, right, are getting slammed on the income tax front. And that is one of the biggest misconceptions of the new Trump tax law is that there's a tax cut for a lot of people in states like California, New York, Maryland, New Jersey, New Jersey is just getting beaten up by this. So, so, you know, while, you know, high earners in those states are suffering, if I'm 25 years old, if I'm, if I'm, you know, just starting out, I'm sitting there on the sidelines waiting because this is good news for them. And just to put it out there, not to sound like we are all about buying 
real estate on this show. I mean, I have had good experience with it. You, Megan, um, have had good experience with it. You give valid reasons why if you are interested in buying, now's a good time to strike. But just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. I'm a big proponent of home purchasing, but I believe that if you are someone who wants a transient lifestyle, you travel a lot, you are not interested in maintaining a home for whatever reason, there are a lot of reasons to rent, a lot of good reasons to stay on the sidelines. And so just want to give that disclaimer. Yeah, no. And I think you have to go through sort of understanding where are you in your life? right? Because also at 25, it might not be the right time to buy something permanent. Um, you know, running the numbers and thinking through it is really important. And, and to your point, I think when someone has had a positive experience in real estate, um, you know, it, it, it colors how they view it on a go forward basis, just as much as someone who has had a negative experience out of the gate. Um, but, you know, I think, I think you bring up a good point that this is not, you know, it's, it's always finding the right moment for you financially and personally. Megan Gorman, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Please come back. And before we go, I have to remind everybody listening where they can find you. That's Checkers Financial Management. You're a Forbes contributor. Your blog is called The Wealth Intersection, and you're on Twitter at Wealth Intersect. Thank you again. Happy New Year to you. And really, I sincerely mean it. Would love to have you back. Thank you so much, Farnoosh. Happy New Year and happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. 